0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxess. Today we are going to resume our studies in 2 Samuel. We are almost done with the book. So you know we have four chapters to go after today. And there's a lot of exciting stuff that takes place in these final chapters of 2 Samuel. These chapters are sort of neglected, but there's good stuff. You'll find yourself challenged, I believe, and I also think you'll find yourself spiritually refreshed in what we see in this book. Since we haven't been in 2 Samuel for a while, let me just briefly refresh you on the storyline of what 2 Samuel is all about. So... 2 Samuel is, in a nutshell, it's called the rise and fall of King David. 2 Samuel begins after 1 Samuel. Uh, King Saul dies. David is finally in charge. Things go really well with David in charge. and Israel goes from sort of a nobody nation to the rough equivalent of a, a world power at that time. But just when things are going incredibly well, like swimmingly well for David, He sort of gets a little bit full of himself and loses sight of things. He happens to be on his roof and he sees a woman bathing from the top of his roof and he looks at her and he lusts after her and even though she is already married to another man, he calls her to him and he has an affair with her and she becomes pregnant and To cover up his sin, he bumps off her husband, has him killed, and then he chooses to marry that woman. That's pretty nasty stuff. And by the way, God is not too happy about that, needless to say. Uh, David does ultimately repent, but as a result of his sin, there will be some real consequences that he'll face in the rest of his life for what he's done. And part of that, he's going to actually lose four of his sons, will die. When he bumped off Uriah, it was a fourfold payment back to him. He actually lost four of his own children. And there also will be a lot of fighting and bickering and swords and death in his family because of that. Part of that, in the second half of 2 Samuel, is his own son, Absalom, creates a coup against his father. That's got to hurt when your son tries to kill you and get rid of you and take over. It's an unsuccessful coup, but it's very close. When we were last in 2 Samuel, uh, David's men, which is a much smaller army, successfully defeated Absalom and his much larger army. And at that point, people didn't expect things to go that way. They didn't know what to do. They had kicked David out of town, ran him out of town, but now who's actually the king of the land? And so there was talk about welcoming David home, asking David to return and, and, and be the king. And that's where our story picks up. We're going to be in Second Samuel 20. But 2 Samuel 20 tells us that when David came back, things were not going to be like they used to be. Instead of a, a great kingdom, it's going to be a corrupted kingdom. We're going to build this chapter under these four headings. First, we'll see it's a kingdom that's filled with bickering and fighting. Second, we'll see it's a kingdom that has a lot of people that are still suffering from the sin that took place. Third, we're going to see it's actually a kingdom that has a deep state operating within it. You know, that's going to be interesting. And then fourthly and finally, we'll see it's a kingdom where now the people in power are living for power and control rather than to serve the, serve the people that they're over. So a lot of fun stuff here. So take your outlines out, and you can follow along. We fill in the blank here if you're new. Number one, uh, what were the qualities of David's restored kingdom? Number one, David's restored kingdom was characterized by fighting and bickering. We'll begin in verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? As I mentioned, the the northern ten tribes have this idea that we want to welcome David back across the Jordan. We want to welcome him home. We want to restore him as king. And the ten tribes have sort of agreed about this. They've reached out to David. But there's one tribe that hasn't said anything to David. And that's The tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe. It's the tribe where Jerusalem, the capital city, is located at. That's sort of weird. Like, why does everybody else want him home, but his own people don't seem to want him home? So David's scratching his head a little bit. So he decides to send him, he can't text, by the way, back then. So he has to actually literally send messengers to his friends who are the priests. And, like, is there a reason that I'm not to be, you guys aren't welcoming me home? That message comes to the priests, and very quickly, uh, the tribe of Judah realizes they're behind the eight ball on this one, and they very quickly start to send their men across the Jordan to welcome David home. Jumping forward a little bit to verse 40, and the king went on to Gilgal, and Chinham went on with him. And all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Here is where the trouble begins. All the people of Judah had come to welcome David home, but only half of all the people of Israel had arrived to welcome David home. Why? I don't know, but I'll give you my guesses. The tribe of Judah was not located too far from where Ju- David was originally located at that time. Uh, right across the Jordan River, so it wasn't too hard for them to actually get there, especially once they were motivated and they realized they were behind the eight ball. But if you take the other ten tribes, they're sort of spread out over the entire nation. You know, it takes a while for everybody to get there. They're not driving a car, you know. They're walking or going with animals. It takes some transportation time. But by jumping the gun, and the tribe of Judah getting the welcome parade started early. Only half of the other people were there, and they were a little, should we say, offended that they started without them. It reminds me of Christmas in our house this year. This was a unique Christmas for us because I'm, a, I'm my only child. Uh, my wife essentially grew up as an only child, so we're used to small family, small Christmases. This year we had 10 people, 3 dogs, one house. It's a totally different ball game, all new to me. So I said to everybody, okay, when are we going to open Christmas presents on Christmas morning? The agreed upon start time was 10 a.m. Like even on Christmas morning, 10 a.m. is really sleeping in, in my humble opinion, says the 5.30 a.m. guy. You know, so morning rolls around, 10 a.m. is right there, you know. And I'm ready, let's go. And my wife's like, oh no, we can't do that. Not everybody's here yet. And I'm like, it's 10 a.m. No, you, no, 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 you, you do not start opening presents when everyone's not here. And being the wise man I am, who has learned to listen to my wife, I very quickly chose not to open presents and to wait because she didn't want anyone to be offended that we opened presents without them because she's really good at being sensitive to how things we do would impact other people. Where I'm a little bit like the time clock guy, you know, a real typical male, just you know, start here, stop there, just goes like that. This is a little bit what happened, I think, with the tribes of Israel when it came to this parade. Judah's like, we're ready to go. I'm sorry if you guys aren't here on time. But in so doing, they really offended the other people who, when they started the parade without them. And this kicks off a conflict between the northern ten tribes called Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And we're gonna go look at this conflict, but as we do, I wanna give us some application out of the conflict. Obviously, the conflict is not a good thing, but what can we learn how to avoid these kind of conflicts and solve these kind of conflicts? Here's the first hint at how to avoid conflicts. Point A, in conflict, assume the best about people Not the worst. Assume the best, not the worst. Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? The tribes of Israel are offended because they believe that the tribe of Judah was intentionally trying to steal David away from them, take him away from them. They believe the tribe of Judah started the parade when they did and didn't continue waiting for them because they had an evil heart and evil motives and dark intentions. Now, is that really what was going on? I personally don't think so. I just think the tribe of Judah was just being a little clueless, just a little insensitive, unaware how their actions were affecting other people. But what happens is the tribes of Israel now are assuming the, the worst about people, not the best about people. And isn't this often what happens in conflicts with us? Somebody says something that maybe is a little cutting, or somebody forgets to give you a call and invite you to the party. Or maybe somebody forgets to invite you to something on Christmas. And where do our hearts go? We assume the worst about other people. We assume they did what they did out of an evil motive, from a bad heart. And Folks, many times, that's just not true. It's just cluelessness, or insensitivity, or unawareness. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. The tribes of Israel accused the tribe of Judah of trying to steal David away from them. I think the the tribes of Israel were trying to steal David away for themselves. I think that's why they came up with the idea of welcoming him home, and that's what they think it was their idea, and now they think that what the tribe of Judah is doing to them is what they were trying to do to the tribe of Judah. Have you ever seen people accuse people of what they are actually guilty of. Any seen that? Oh yeah, we see that all the time. I think they are accusing the tribe of Judah what they were guilty of in their intentions and their motives. The next piece of this conflict and a a lesson we can learn. In conflict, act humbly, not defensively. Verse 42. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense? Or has he given us any, any gift? Notice how they respond. As soon as Israel says you're trying to steal him away, they get real defensive, don't they? Real defensive. We're not doing that. We're not doing this. Maybe a better answer would have been, respond humbly, not defensively. Humbly would have been, I'm sorry. We were wrong. We didn't intend to offend you. I'm sorry that we offended you. But isn't this often what happens to us? When somebody accuses us of doing something that we maybe didn't do, don't we start by getting real defensive? No, not me. No. We didn't do this. No, I didn't do that. As opposed to being concerned about, hey, I want to be humble. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I injured you. We get defensive. But when we get defensive on the first thing, does that make the conflict go away? Or does it make the conflict get worse? What do you think? Worse. Thank you. Somebody. I need need one Baptist in the crowd. Thank you. Yes, it makes the conflict get a lot worse. And that's exactly what happens here. Here's the next lesson. In conflict, learn to overlook an offense. Verse 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. Well, we have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak about bringing back our king? So, now that the tribe of Judah was defensive, uh, the tribe of Israel says, Oh, think you think you're important. You think you're important because he's your relative. Well, we're more important than you are. There's ten in our tribe, ten tribes of Israel, and only one in your tribe. In fact, it was our idea to start with, not yours. I'm better than you are. Can you see it just ringing through this text? What's the answer? Okay, maybe the tribe of Judah acted defensively, not humbly. And maybe it was hurtful to you, but the right answer at that point is you don't know, overlook the offense. Just let it be like water off a duck's back. Don't let it get under your skin and make a big conflictual issue out of it. Cuz then all of a sudden you're say, who can be meaner than the other guy, right? Anybody been there? And that's exactly what they're doing. Well, we're bigger and better than you are. Next application point. In conflict, refuse to speak insulting words. That ever happen? You get angry and all of a sudden you're going to get nasty with your words? That's what happens next. Continuing in verse 43. But the words of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The word fiercer in English, the Hebrew means cruel, insulting, harsh words. we We can say nastier things about you than you can say about us. We can cut you down more than you can cut us down. That's what's going on here. It's a spitting war. You guys know what a spitting war is? Who can spit on the other person more? That's what's happening here. But here's what's interesting. They're in a spitting, nasty war, bickering and fighting with each other, but how did this whole thing start? What was the issue? Somebody left for the welcome home parade a little too early. A really insignificant, foolish little offense has resulted in a huge, catastrophic fight between God's people. Isn't that often the way it is? You know, you end up with a big fight with your spouse at home, and what is it over? Should the toilet paper roll from the top or should it roll from the bottom? It's on something like that, you know. Should you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the bottom or from the top? Those are the kind of things that break marriages, right? But it makes absolutely no sense. It's just that you don't know how to de-escalate when it gets started. These are all the de-escalation things we've been talking about right here. Like, don't say insulting words. Now, as Christians, one of the last parts of spiritual maturity to develop is often the ability to seek unity, to maintain unity, to be humble in a conflict, and to overlook Offense. We offense. I've seen many people who have a lot of spiritual maturity, but they struggle in this area. They don't want to let swallow their pride, and they don't want to let themselves be wronged and just move on. But that is so important for us, isn't it? Just to let it go. Look what the Bible says here. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. Or Ephesians 2-3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Fight for unity. Keep that unity. Overlook the offense. Assume the best. Not the worst. And I know what some of you are saying. Well, I I would overlook those things. But you do not understand. You do not understand what they said to me. You do not understand how they hurt me. You don't understand how evil it was what they did to me. So I'm not going to forgive. If that's you this morning, all I have to say is you need to talk to Jesus on that one. Is Jesus has some very direct words. It's these. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As forgiven people, we must be forgiving. If we're forgiven people, who refuse to forgive others. The Chances are, maybe we're not truly forgiven ourselves. Next point of uh, conflict and what we can learn about it. Conflict allows the devil an opportunity to do his work. You realize that. Now we're into chapter 20, verse 1, which is all new material, no more refresher. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Sheba is described as a worthless man. The Hebrew, it means literally the, the word belial, which means wicked. It means evil. You could call this guy the son of the devil, is what he is. And he sees this conflict going back and forth between God's people, and he sees conflict is an opportunity to tear apart God's people. That's what the devil does, doesn't it? We get angry, we get fighting, we get into a conflict, and the devil sees that's an opportunity to tear us apart. And so Sheba says, hey guys, it's time for us to succeed from the union. We're leaving. David is no longer going to be our king. And I'm thinking, like 24 hours before this, it was the tribes of Israel's idea to welcome David back as the king. And now, it's so spun out of control that you have people calling for succession from the king. And there's a lesson in here, folks. You know, when we get angry, when you get all wound up, doesn't good sense and reason just evaporate? True? We will say things, we will do things that if we were thinking in our right mind, like, why did I ever say that to my spouse? Why did I ever do that? When the devil sees us angry, it's an opportunity for him to tear us apart. This is so incredibly foolish. So we read So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So the initial picture we get of David's restored kingdom is it wasn't anything like his old kingdom. Instead of having people that were unified, He has a nation full of people that are bickering and that are fighting. They're fighting over what are truly petty, foolish things. Isn't that the way the the world is nowadays? People love to fight over petty, foolish things. People vying for power and control, seeing who can be offended more. The Bible says this about us as Christians. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace from Ephesians 4.3. And this one, Ephesians 4.26 and 27. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, or maybe you could say to men just like Sheba who sees conflict and uses it as an opportunity to tear God's people apart. So the first characteristic of the David's restored kingdom Is this not unified? It's filled with bickering people who are bickering over silly things. The second one comes right along here. David's restored kingdom had many who suffered after sin. Verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And for those of you who don't know about these ten concubines, when David was forced to flee from Jerusalem, he left ten of his wives to care for the house. Absalom arrived in Jerusalem, and one of the first things he did was he took those wives. And on the very roof that David had lusted after Bathsheba, he raped all ten of those women in public. Now David has the problem. He's home, but what about these ten wives? As the king, can he have them back as his wives now that they have been defiled? And The answer is no. He's not mean to them. He still loves them. He cares for them. He puts them in a house. But they have to live alone, apart from him until their dying day because he can't function as their husband to them. Now I'm sure that when they were first married they were grateful for their beauty which probably is one of the reasons that David married them but now at this point they're wishing they had never been married to the king. And I was reading this and I thought you know, when we sin other people suffer. David sinned, and these ten wives now were raped and suffered because of it. In fact, let's take that even tighter. When we sin, those we love the most are the ones who suffer the most. Isn't that true? Ten wives of David suffered in loneliness to their dying day. And I'm sure every single time he walked by that house... And when he saw the women he was providing for but could never be with, I'm sure he had that great sadness in his heart knowing that, you know, this is all because of my sin. Look what the scripture says. This was directly a result of what he had done back in 2 Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is the consequence of his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. That was Absalom, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in, did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. By the way, these ten women were not the only people to suffer. I was pondering about this. Remember the coup that Absalom executed. Of course, Absalom ends up dying, but the Bible tells us back then that in that coup, when Absalom gathered an army and fought against his father, 20,000 people died. That was most likely just the casualties on Absalom's side. There are 20,000 fathers that are missing, 20,000 sons that are missing. All of this came about Because one man chose to sin who was the king, and other people suffered. So the lesson is sin, it doesn't ever work by staying in a nice, neat little box and containing itself to our life. Sin always leaks out of our life and affects other people, often those that we love the most. So we've seen with David's restored kingdom, number one, it's filled with bickering and fighting. And number two, it has people that are suffering because of sin. And now we get to some very interesting stuff. David's restored kingdom had a deep state. And all of a sudden you perked up. Deep state? What's going on? Let me show you. We know that Sheba has created a rebellion against David. Before this, we know that David's army commander was a man named Joab. Uh, but... To create unity between the in the nation, David chose to take Amasa, who was Absalom's former army commander, and put Amasa over command of his army. So it sort of gets the two sides and like works them together, you know, people from both sides. It also demotes Joab, who killed Absalom, even though he was expressly told not to kill Absalom, so he disobeyed the king. So Joab gets a demotion out of it. Amasa gets a promotion out of it. Amasa's in charge. David has to do something about Sheba, who's creating a rebellion, so he calls his army commander named Amasa. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed. Why did it take him longer than three days? A couple ideas. Uh, number one, maybe it was just too short of a time to get an army together. Number two, you realize he was the former commander of the armies of Israel. And here he's trying to raise people for the, for the war in the area of Judah. It's like like having the wrong guy, trying to raise on the wrong team. Or maybe he was just slow. I don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What matters is the three days came and went, and he was not back. And this is what we read. If I can get my paper. David had to make some decisions. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. So take the Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape us. With Amasa not back, David turns to Abishai. Let me give you some history. Joab, who was his former army commander, and Abishai were brothers. Each led a division of the army. He's not going to go to Joab. Remember, he's got a demotion. He killed his son when he was specifically told not to. So he goes over to Joab's brother, Abishai. He says, you lead a section of the army. We have to go and stop Sheba before he creates more trouble. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of If You're reading through that quickly. You think there's nothing significant in that. But there is some very important pieces. Let's take it in reverse order. Well, the mighty men were going out. That's a a group of a little more than 30 of David's men who were his best soldiers. The Karathites and the Pelathites are the bodyguard division. They're going. And Joab's men are going. And that's where you pause. If Abishai is now leading the charge, and Abishai has his own division of the army, why is Joab's division of the army going? Why is he leading the wrong division of the army in pursuit of Sheba? When they were at the great stone that is Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Boy, this does not look good. You can picture Amasa like playing catch up, you know, trying to run after them. I'm I'm running late, guys. I'm here, but the army's already left without you. And that's the army you're supposed to be leading. Does not look good. Let me read. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fashioned on his thigh. And as he went forward it fell out. Oh. Joab was demoted, remember that? But Joab is not acting like he's demoted. He's actually there. He's with his men and he's dressed just like a regular soldier. And it says he has a sword on his left thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. So as he sees Amasa coming, Amasa comes next to him, and he he sort of bows in front of Amasa, and he looks like a real klutz. He can't even keep his sword in its sheath. It just falls out on the ground. (laughs) Joab, the klutzy guy. But there's a lot more going on here. And Joab said to Amasa, Oh, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. This greeting, and it says, Is it well with you? It's the Hebrew word shalom. He says, Oh, brother, peace. He grabs him by the beard and draws him close. Now incidentally, Joab, And Amasa are cousins. They're relatives. They did holidays together. But now that he has Amasa by the beard and he's drawing him in, what was he doing with his left hand? Picking up the sword that he had conveniently dropped on the ground. And who could now not look down because their head was held up but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails on the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri. Joab sliced him open from bottom to top in one slice. So well, his guts spilled on the ground right in front of them. Uh, by the way, he's going to die, uh, but he's not going to die quick. He still has lungs, he still has a working heart. He just happens to have his guts hanging on the ground in front of him. And by the way, this is how he's treating his relative. Because his relative was put in charge of the army over him. And he didn't like that. Because he wants to be number one. He wants to be in charge. And incidentally, this is not the first time he's done something like this. If you've been with us for earlier parts of the study, back in 2 Samuel chapter 3, remember when David had made peace with Abner? Abner was the former commander of Saul's army. David made peace with him. And what did Joab do? Sliced him open and put a sword in his stomach against David's will before killing him. This is the second time Joab has killed somebody that David has made peace with. And he's killing his own relative. And one of Joab's men stood, took his stand by a mass and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. It took a while for him to die. It was ugly. So he just dragged him in a field and threw a jacket over him and said, so much for you, buddy, we're moving on. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. What we're to notice is there's actually two rebels. There's Sheba, the son of Bichri, who's the external, obvious rebel. But there's Joab, who's also a rebel, not on the outside. He's a rebel sort of on the inside of the system. He claims loyalty to David, but he chooses to do his own thing in spite of what David tells him to do. He killed the man that David had put in charge. This obviously is going to make the relationship between David and Joab, should we call it rather frosty? Later, when David is about to die, David is going to instruct his son Solomon that first order of business that Solomon needs to do is he needs to take Joab out of the picture. Because Joab is a deep state actor. He is doing his own thing and not following the king and obeying what the king tells him to do. Look what David says or to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zerui did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Solomon, if you're actually going to have a kingdom that you're really in charge of, you have to get rid of this deep state actor who's willing to disobey me, and he'll be willing to disobey you. So we've seen what the (laughs) characterizations of David's restored kingdom are. It's rather corrupted. We have people who fight and bicker over silly things. You have a lot of people suffering for sin. And we have a deep state going on that's sort of running the kingdom over David. Now we get to the fourth point. David's restored kingdom abused power instead of caring for people. Verse 14. Then Sheba passed through all the tribes of, Abel of Be- to Abel of beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. The good news is that Sheba's rebellion didn't go really too well. A lot of people didn't follow him. He ended up getting about as far away from David and Jerusalem as he possibly could. He went to the city of Abel. Let me put that up on the map there for you. You can see it's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the very, very edge of Jewish territory. So he knows he's in trouble. He's got to get away as far away as he can. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. And they cast up a mound against the city. And it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. So we know that Sheba's inside the city. Joab's like, okay, we have one option. We're going to destroy the city. Puts the dirt mound over the moat. Gets the battery ram out. He's going to take down the entire city. And at this point, all of a sudden, a wise lady speaks. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, <coughs> come here, that I may speak to you. He came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, well, well I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. So they settled the matter. Joab, we're a kind of people that we talk our problems out. We don't fight our problems out. Can we like talk about this situation where you're about ready to attack and destroy the city? And I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. We're not troublemakers. We're loyal citizens of Israel. You seek to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? We've been around a long time. We're a faithful part of the community. Why are you trying to destroy us? And Joab answered, Well, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Well, that's not really true. Ask Amasa. He's still under the jacket in the field, right? But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. We'll send it by airmail. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. As we read this, we're thinking all Joab needed was to kill Sheba. You realize he was about ready to kill an entire city of faithful, loyal people in his own country just to get to one man. Sort of a little bit of a messed up character, isn't it? The Bible says this in Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, that when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. In other words, before you attack the city, explain what it would take to make some peace. Uh, If it was not for that wise woman, that entire city would be dead. What these last two narratives are wanting us to do is to get a window into Joab's character. Joab willing to kill his own relative in a bloody, gruesome way, and then not even think twice as a resumed command and left him wallowing in his blood on the side of the road. Joab, a guy who was willing to put an entire city of loyal, faithful Israelites to death just to get one person. You know, he's he's a thug, isn't he? He's the kind of person you do not want in charge of anything. But that's where we get very interesting here at the end. David's restored kingdom was a corrupt kingdom. The final verses tell us this. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benai the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carthites and the Pelathites, And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Apiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. This sounds completely insignificant, but is especially significant. This list of who's in charge, it shows up in this book right after a kingdom is established. There's a very similar list that shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Right after his kingdom was established, right before he fell into sin with Bathsheba. Let me read you that list and show you the difference in the kingdom when it was established in righteousness and when his restored kingdom was restored in corruption. Here's the other list. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So Joab the son of Zerui was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder, And Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Zariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. There are two big differences in this list. The first one is this. In the second list, David is not in charge. The first list begins with this. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people, and then it says, Joab the son of Zuri was over the army. In the second list, that's missing in his restored kingdom. In fact, it begins with Joab being over the army. Who's really in control? David in his restored kingdom, or Joab, the corrupt thug Tell me, who's in control? Joab, right? He's in control. David, when he was in charge, he made sure these people had justice and equity. Is Joab a person who's making sure things are done justly and with equity? No, the exact opposite of that. He's a thug who murders his own relatives and takes out entire cities, if he could, just to get to his point, even though the people are innocent. It's a very different corrupted kingdom. The second difference in these two lists is the second list has this line that the first list doesn't. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. In other words, in the second kingdom, slave labor was introduced. Before this, the government was there to serve the people in his first kingdom. In the restored kingdom, the people were there to serve the government. In fact, the government forced people into work projects. Slave labor was introduced. When you get to Solomon and the building of the temple, guess how most of that temple was built? Through slave labor of the people. When Solomon dies... And Rehoboam, his son, takes over. One of the first requests the people make is saying, please reduce our forced labor. Reduce our slave labor. It is too much for us. And look what happens. This is how Rehoboam replied. My father made your yoke heavy. Well, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. Well, I will discipline you with scorpions. Then King Rehoboam sent to Adoram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor. There it is. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and to flee to Jerusalem. And that is the beginning of the divided kingdom of Israel because of the slave labor was introduced. So we see David's corrupted kingdom had people who bickered over a lot of things, (laughs) had people who were suffering for sin, had, had a deep state in it, people who didn't obey him like Joab. And it was a kingdom that was about power and not care for the people. And here's my application for you. It's in the very bottom of your outlines. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a sinful man just like the rest of us. God's people needed a better king, didn't they? The good news is, folks, we have a better king. His name is Jesus. And his kingdom is not filled with corruption. His kingdom is filled with righteousness, justice, and equity. Because he is in charge, and there's no deep state after him. And you and I, through his grace and his forgiveness, have been grafted into the kingdom of Jesus. And my friends, that is a kingdom that you'll be proud to be a part of. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for your study of your Word. How we see that even though David was a great man, a a godly man, but sin still influenced his life when he sinned. And sin influenced his kingdom. And even when he tried to restore his kingdom, it was a a corrupted kingdom. I thank you that we have a better king in your son, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that your kingdom is without corruption. And I ask you that as your sons and daughters on this earth, that when we relate to other people, we would relate not as people of the world in corruption to one another, but we'd relate in in holiness and impurity as citizens of King Jesus' everlasting kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.